effort to find a way to help churches grow in size and maturity. And uh, I, I don't want to say that's a bad thing. Uh, sometimes I balk at it a little bit because I, I keep remembering the part of God's Word that says that some of us plant seeds, some of us do the watering, but God provides the growth. And I figure if He wants the church to grow, then He'll grow it, and He'll do it in His way. We just have to do the rest of the things that we're told to do as His church. And uh, when I say as His church, you obviously know that church is not a building. That's just a place where His church gathers. And there are several of them. But we happen to be the First Baptist Church of Cambria. And we gather here to open the true and errorless Word of God, written by God through men. So today, I want to talk about the early chapters. Here in these early chapters of Acts that we're going through right now give us the original curriculum for church growth. That curriculum consists of doctrine, fellowship, sharing, communion, and worship. And the word church is a church that we've used so much in, in so many different ways that sometimes we forget that the church actually had a, a beginning in time. Now today we're going to see the first use of the word church in the book of Acts. Our passage for today is Acts 2, verses 40 to 47, if you want to stick a finger in there. We're going to read it in a few moments. But this particular uh, passage is a key in the New Testament for finding out what the church is and how the church is to operate as a local church. Now, those of you who remember Ross Perot, remember he's the guy that helped elect Bill Clinton back in the 90s. But he had something that he said during his campaign that says, Who am I and why am I here? And that's what we're going to study about today in the book of Acts. Who are we and why are we here? Now, it would have been an incredible lesson in church doctrine to have been in Jerusalem and watched that first church grow from the original 120 disciples that were there at Pentecost in the morning to growing to over 3,000 by noon. But of course, we don't have a functioning time machine yet, uh, but we can do the next best thing. And as we can study these seven key verses. So today I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses, starting at verse 40. And follow along with me if you would. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. So we start with the establishment of the church right off the bat in in verses 40 and 41. We saw last week the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people, the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost after Peter's powerful sermon, directing them to repent and then be baptized. And that morning at least 3,000 people became followers of Christ. These 3,000 new believers, after being baptized, were added to the original 120, placing the membership of the church of Jesus Christ at about 3,120 people. That's church growth for you. (laughs) In verse 40, Luke summarized Peter's preaching, his testifying, and his exhortation this way. He said, save yourselves from this wicked or crooked generation. Uh, that same sermon could be, should be, maybe is right now being preached that same way. And again, last week we discussed Peter's demonstration of the, the priority of preaching God's word. That is, preaching the gospel. And just as an aside, preaching God's word. I think I mentioned last week, not my word. I preach God's word to you. You read God's Word and check me out and make sure I'm preaching what it says in here, but this is the authority. It is not anybody's opinion. It's God's Word. So Peter didn't just tell people to be baptized and then leave them on their own to figure out what to do from there. They were baptized there that very day, and that was the practice in the early church. His focus had been on the Messiah's death and resurrection the forgiveness that God offered, and how it led to, it did lead that morning to a mass conversion of souls. In Acts 10, when Cornelius' household received the gospel from Peter, they too were baptized immediately, as was the Ethiopian eunuch. He was converted by Philip in Acts 8. And you remember that story. He got out of his chariot immediately, was baptized. At Pentecost... Those 120 people undoubtedly divided the first 3,000 converts into a number of small groups and then took them to be baptized, probably in many pools around Jerusalem. One of the uh, studies of this phenomenon suggested it probably would have taken up to five hours to baptize all of them. I I had the privilege of doing a baptism in Ukraine once in a little tiny lake. I baptized 30 people, and it took us about three hours to do just those 30 people. So you can just about imagine what it might have taken to do 3,000. But remember, Peter put the time of Pentecost at about 9 o'clock in the morning when he rebutted the idea that they may have been drunk. Uh, and that probably lasted then around till around noon, his sermon did. <laughs> okay, I won't. but the baptisms were likely done by the end of the day. And that outward profession of a new inward faith uh, just confessed a few hours earlier that was done in multiple locations around the city was an incredible, a tremendous witness to the rest of Jerusalem. It had to cause a hubbub. They had to say, what are all these people doing? It, it listed the, or it put the question right out there, what is going on? 
Now, in verse 41, we see that the new believers professed their faith through baptism. That was their first witness of their faith. But I want to point something else out here. Look at the verse in the New, G- New King James. It said, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It was those who gladly received Peter's words that were baptized and added to the church membership. Not just names added to the rolls to artificially swell up your numbers. And, and folks, I don't, I'm not here to badmouth anybody else, but there is an awful lot of that going on today in the churches, in America at least. Invite anybody in, make them a member, swell the rolls. That's not what the Lord was about. These people here in Pentecost in Jerusalem were converted souls. They were baptized believers. Every person in the New Jerusalem church was a baptized believing Christian. And if you weren't a believer, you weren't a member of the church. I say this in contrast to today because there are churches that call themselves Christian churches that are filled with with non-Christian members who have made no profession of faith by following believers' baptism. I won't do this right now, but maybe sometime I'll tell you the story about how I was first exposed to baptism in the former Soviet Union. What an important thing that was to becoming a member of the church. Now, the people here are sitting in the seats of churches these days who aren't believers, and we want that. We do want non-believers sitting in these empty spots in the pews. Do we not? Because we want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are to, re- to practice in the church regenerate membership. I like to think of non-believers as pre-members of the church. They're not members yet, but we're working on them. They're just, uh, it's not just our church, it's Jesus' church, Right? It's his family. So some point out that there is a difference, and you have to think about this. This is one of those little puzzles. There's a difference between the professing church and the confessing church. Um, Professing, sometimes you can say just about anything. But confessing takes it to a different level. Now, the early church practiced regenerate membership. That is, their souls had experienced the regeneration of salvation, to become members of the church. So, (laughs) you ever wonder if they actually kept track of the numbers, the membership of the church? Well, we don't really know for sure, but they must have kept some kind of records because they they knew that before Pentecost there were 120 and afterwards there were 3,120. So, verses 40 and 41 tell us of the establishment of the church. Then in verse 42 we read of the edification of the church. Now, I think it's instructive that the very first activity recorded by Luke following Pentecost in verse 42 is this. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In the New King James it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, this was a teaching church uh, what, and what was the apostles' doctrine? Well, it was the sum of all they had learned 
by firsthand observation of the life and the ministry and the works and the words of Jesus Christ. They didn't have this yet. They had the Old Testament. But this is the New Time. This is the New Testament. So it was the life, the words, the work of Jesus Christ that they were teaching in the Apostles' Doctrine. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus told the disciples, Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so they were passing Jesus' teachings along to the new converts. Now, to be truly edified, the New Testament church had to be a Bible-teaching church. There is no other source of his teachings but the Bible. How else will his teachings be passed along except through the teaching of Scripture? The Apostles' Doctrine is the bedrock of the church. This, what God has to say to us in his word, is the bedrock of the church. It's not my opinion. It's not Pastor Chris's opinion. It's not the next senior pastor's opinion. It's not Peter's opinion. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not Moses' opinion. This is God's word to us as his believers, as his children. When Paul began planting churches, he impressed upon his young protégés, Timothy and Titus, how important it is to pass along sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he said, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then in Titus 1, verse 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The church today must be about studying and passing along the same apostles' doctrine as those young pastors did in the first century. Not only can we study the Old Testament as they did, but we also now have the Gospels and the apostolic letters written and circulated among the churches for almost 2,000 years. The church is edified, built up, by the teaching of sound doctrine. Now, we continue on in verse 42. We begin to see the experiences of the church, or the experience of the church. A lot of modern believers are sometimes shocked by the experience of the first century church, the intimacy that it speaks of, and the sharing that characterized that church in Jerusalem. It was a reflection of a set of values that facilitated true spiritual life and growth. It says the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, koinonia is what we call fellowship. It means to hold things in common. The fellowship spoken of here means that, first of all, they opened their hearts 
to one another. That is, they shared their lives with one another. Have you ever walked into a church and, and tried to get connected somehow and found yourself buttoned up against a wall somewhere? That was the wall of hearts that aren't open. I have to tell you, I've only been here six weeks. I have not seen that here. We have been very warmly welcomed into this fellowship. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to open our hearts to one another. Life can't be lived in isolation from others. Just like the arm can't function if it's isolated from the rest of the body. Philippians 4.21 says, <coughs> Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word saint is used in the singular form. But between Acts and Revelation, it's used 60 times in the plural form. There's more than fellowship with Christ in the church. There's fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We want to share what we have, our fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ with you. That's with each other. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it's, a, it's an exhortation not to forsake assembling ourselves together to produce love and good works among ourselves. We need to share our hearts Share our lives with one another face to face. In verses 44 and 45, we see that they also opened their hands to one another. That is, they, they shared their material goods with one another. And the scripture says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people have taken this passage to mean that Christianity encourages a, a type of, uh, of communism or socialism in that all property was held in common and shared by all people. But don't be fooled into thinking that. Under communism, sharing is not voluntary or motivated by love. It's compulsory. You work, you make, and you give all of it. Sharing is compulsory, and no one owns personal property under communism, by the way. So this was not communism. And it wasn't socialism, where you're allowed to own personal property, but you're told what you will and will not do with that personal property. And the church was not functioning like a commune, trying to replace the family as a fundamental social unit. So don't let anybody tell you that the first church was a, a commune operating like communists or socialists. I'm sorry, it's just not true. The early believers, though, did own personal property, but they shared it voluntarily to meet the needs of those who had nothing. Now, also notice the text does not say that everyone sold everything and put it in a common fund. It says they sold things as the need arose and shared them with those who had a need. 
I'd be willing to bet y'all are doing that now. Individually, I'm sure as a church we do that. But we share with people who have need. Finally, in verse 46, it says they also opened their homes to one another. Clearly, those in the early church, uh, the believers didn't sell their homes. (laughs) Otherwise, they couldn't bring anybody back into them. (laughs) Verse 46 tells us that they went breaking bread in their homes. Or in the New King James, it says breaking bread from house to house. But they opened their homes. The meals they shared were likely similar to what we call potlucks. People carrying dishes in and sharing them together. Remember, a a lot of them were visitors from out of town that were here just for Pentecost. But people opened their homes and shared. That's something else we've we've observed here. Uh, A number of homes have already been opened up to Laura Lee and I. We're very grateful for that. But it's been a great way to get to know people. Now, some of those visitors in Jerusalem may have stayed longer and needed a place to stay. And obviously they needed food to eat. So the believers in that early church pooled their resources and provided for everyone in their homes, guests and families. Open hearts, open hands, open homes. It's a good way, really, to define fellowship in the first century, and it's a good way to define fellowship in the 21st century. Most churches today have some form of small group ministry to help believers meet together for a teaching time and a sharing of life time and then of course sharing food together house sized groups is a biblical model for encouraging fellowship among the members of the church again open hearts open hands open homes it's the experience of the church so we've seen the establishment of the church edification of the church, and the experience of the church. The new church demonstrated its love for Christ in many ways. So we need to look at also the expression of the church. In verse 42, they were communing at the Lord's table. In the New Testament, as it says in verse 42, the phrase, breaking bread together. That often refers to the communion supper, sharing the Lord's table. It's a chance to look back at what Christ has done, to remember, to acknowledge. It's also, though, a chance to look forward to his second coming. And then it's a chance for us at that time during communion to look inward at our spiritual condition, of the spiritual condition of our lives. Is there sin in our lives that's unconfessed? And we confess it before we commune with the Lord. Now clearly communion should be offered and received as a part of worship on a regular basis by every church that confesses Jesus Christ. Then in verse 42, they also continued in prayer. In verse 42, we see that the church devoted themselves to prayers. Now, the plural form of this word, prayers, likely indicates a variety of kinds of prayer. That is, 
spontaneous prayers as well as some of their more formal, memorized prayers of their uh, liturgical Jewish background. As these liturgical prayers were recited, it was with a new meaning. It was in a new context. As their Old Testament truths blended with a New Testament understanding of Jesus' death and his resurrection. These were prayers of, of praise, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication or need, and prayers of confession. All are valid forms of worshiping God corporately. Then in, in verse 46, it says they came together in the temple day by day. It gives, verse 46 gives us additional insight here that they were day by day attending the temple together. And scholars believe that the Christians met in the Gentile court of the temple where non-Jews were permitted to gather. It was probably the only place in Jerusalem large enough to hold over 3,000 people at one time. Because during the time of these feasts, sometimes there were tens of thousands in there. Most of the new Christians were Jews, but probably functioned a lot like a Messianic Jewish Christian would today. I went to my first memorial service this last week, conducted by Messianic Jews. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Very worshipful. As the family gathered, they did so daily. Now, we pretty much confine our gatherings to Sunday mornings, uh, maybe with a, a midweek service in some churches or a few special events. But they were together daily for the purpose of, one, celebrating their new faith. Verses 46 and 47 tells us the church continued to grow with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Luke also says that many wonders and signs evoked awe in every soul, both within and outside the church. Within the church, they were in awe of God that they had now come to know more personally than ever before through Christ. Outside the church, they were in awe of the apostles' power and the body life, or the, the community, if you will, exhibited by the church as they ministered to one another within their little family. Now, there are some places today that, that emphasize signs and wonders. And I won't stand up here and say they don't exist. But we don't witness them like they did then. Because we have the completed Word of God to authenticate our Christian experience. Both Jesus' earthly ministry and the apostles' ministries received authentication or credibility, validation from the signs and wonders that God did through them. But today our Christian experience and message are validated by comparing them to the teachings of Scripture. Like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, who received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. This is what I was telling you last week. I can tell you what it says in here, and I hope that you're examining the Scriptures daily to see that it's so. The first Christian church in Jerusalem worshipped. 
with glad and generous hearts. Whether they were in homes or the temple courts, they were not burdened by things like the self-centeredness or the showmanship that kind of stains our worship today. They just offered up to God what was in their hearts through music, through psalms, and through their prayers. So what? Finally, in verse 47, we see the expansion of the church. Having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because of all this edification, Luke says the Lord added to their numbers day by day. Now we know in time, the Jewish leadership turned against the Christian church. But for a while, verse 47 tells us that the church enjoyed having favor with all the people. Now perhaps that was a fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Many people responded to the love shared within and outside the church. People were being added to the church every day. Where would we put them? <laughs> Folks all over Jerusalem wanted to be part of that new community of faith, to be followers of Jesus Christ, people who believed He was, in fact, the Messiah that they had been promised. Members brought new converts for baptism that were assimilated into the body of Christ. And some estimates are that by the end of the first generation of believers, the congregation of new believers in Jerusalem grew to somewhere around 100,000. Praise the Lord. So what? In Acts 17, 6, it was observed that these early disciples, the first century church, had turned the world upside down. Folks, I want to tell you right now, our, our world needs to be turned upside down. It says these apostles taught the doctrine of Christ. They fellowshiped around Christ. They remembered Christ in communion. They communicated with Christ in their prayers. And they exalted Christ in worship. And when we, the 21st century church, focus on Jesus Christ that way, when we focus on, on His teachings, His ministry, His work, and we apply that to our lives, then we will turn the world upside down again. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for...